cartridge. What a great song that is. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Just like we've just sung, Lord, that's our prayer. Captivate us with your glory, we pray, and and help me preach your text with clarity and confidence in your living scriptures. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19. If it's your first time to study through Psalm 19, let me just say that it's a psalm that's easily divided into three parts. The first two parts, or because this is a poem, the first two stanzas focus on the way that God has revealed Himself to man. And then the third stanza, the the final portion of this psalm, focuses on our, or just mankind's right response to such divine revelation. Now looking at those two stanzas, the, the first of the two stanzas involves God's wordless revelation as He is proclaiming it in the universe. And the second stanza involves the clarity of His written Word. Thus, the Scriptures we've read so far and the songs that we have been singing this week. Now whether generally through nature or specifically through Scripture, God has made Himself known from the beginning of time to all people. It's important to catch this because as a result of that, mankind is without excuse. So let's read Psalm 19 together. It happens to be a psalm that C.S. Lewis took to be the greatest poem in the whole of the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. This is the word of the Lord. We'll read the entire Chapter now, Psalm 19. It begins with this heading to the choir master, a psalm of David. And then the verse begins. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from his heat. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Verse 14, which we've prayed this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. In our study of Psalm 19 this morning, I want us to consider just this first stanza. And first stanza, as I've said, speaks to God's glory in nature. The psalmist helps us see this by providing within this stanza one general principle, which we'll look at in two different ways, but one general principle and then one specific illustration. So let's begin looking at verses 1 through 6. God's glory in nature. Your outline will begin this morning and it'll end when I conclude Psalm 19 in two weeks' time. Let's begin by looking at this general principle which the psalmist presents in these two parts. Notice verses 1 through 4, which we've read, but here's what's going on. God's general revelation of Himself, and here's what I want you to catch, is visible for all. God's general revelation of Himself is visible for us all. Think about this, and I'm going to talk about it for a moment um, throughout our beginning time here, that the skies, that which we see above, the skies are an art gallery for His handiwork. The skies are an art gallery for His handiwork. Notice what verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. Listen, this principle doesn't need much illustration, I mean, explanation. We see the evidence every morning, every night, when we take time to look beyond ourselves and just notice. You don't have to travel far to see it. I was, I was driving, I was trying to remember when this scene etched in my head, but it's four, five, six weeks ago. If you guys are stargazers you might remember this but i was i was driving from lookout valley around moccasin bend long before daybreak one morning toward downtown chattanooga when i when i rounded that bend i was stunned by the beauty of what was staring me in the face there it was just a sliver of the moon on what looked like the bottom of a perfect line and what rose above it were three orbs which i learned later were these planets that were all lining up with the silver gleam of the moon, and it was just standing right in front of me, and I couldn't help but notice it, right? It was beautiful. And when we, by God's grace, are afforded just the grace, the gift, of taking in one of these jaw-dropping glimpses, what is it we're seeing? We're not just seeing the moon and the planets and the stars and all those things lining up. We're seeing evidence that God is. My family's visited the Creation Museum a few times and 
Among other things that we like to see there is we like to visit their planetarium. And when you sit in this planetarium, you're in this what feels like this round ceiling room and they're about to project a presentation on the ceiling of this and the wall in front of us and you get to see unfold and they're putting on display for us not just the stars that we can see with our own eyes at night but they're also putting on display the galaxies and it just unfolds before us in this most dramatic and I'll even say awe-inspiring way and the first time we saw that, we, it kind of ended, it concluded, and people began to migrate out, and, and we were just kind of left there in this silent awe. And when you and I gaze up into the art gallery of the sky above us, we cannot, be, we cannot avoid being confronted with our own smallness, right? And when we look up there, we're not only confronted with our own smallness, but we're seeing some things or someone's bigness. Something else is responsible for what we see when we look up there. What are we seeing? And the passage, verse 1, makes it pretty clear. David says, we are gazing upon God's glory. Think about the word glory. We... We hear it a lot, we talk about it a lot, we define it a lot, but you, you may be pleased to hear that there's, there's really a connection between the biblical word glory and the word that you and I use, it, which is heavy. So in essence, the, the root of the meaning of glory is the word heavy. Think about this in the physical, literal sense. Do you remember in the Old Testament when the high priest Eli he got news about the Ark of the Covenant being stolen. He learned about the fate of his two sons. And he was so overwrought, he was sitting up on a high wall. He fell backwards from his chair, fell off the wall, and he died. In describing that, the Bible says he was heavy. The exact same word that we see in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, to mean glory. Think about this. Another time we've seen this word heavy in the Old Testament. King David's son Absalom is fleeing in the midst of a battle and conflict with uh, one of David's men. And it was speaking of King Absalom who in his flight got stuck in the trees by his hair. And it says in describing that once a year he would cut his hair and it would measure so much that it would, a, a few shekels actually is kind of the weight that it was there, but it described his hair as being so plentiful that it was heavy. So there's this physical sense that goes with the word like you and I use it. So with that as the backdrop in this physical sense, it's an easy step then for us to go from the literal meaning of the word heavy to the figurative meaning of the word heavy. And it's to see this. The figurative concept of heavy and glory would be weighty. Weighty. And we use this this way in a couple of usages, even in our own language today. We'll, we, we may use it negatively when, when someone delivers bad news to us. They may preface that bad news with, hey, I, I, need, to, I need to tell you. I, got some, I just got some heavy news i got to share with you. But it's weighty, Right? Or uh, we, may, we may use this positively. When we, when we refer to someone as being important or we recognize them as being honorable or a person in our society who demands and deserves 
high respect. We may refer to them as weighty. Think back, if you will, to the book of Exodus. When God gave the instructions for how the priest was to be dressed, he had his high priestly garments, and those garments were to be over the top ornate. So the ornamentation on these robes were to speak to something very weighty. In fact, they, it tells us in Exodus that they were instructed to make holy garments for Aaron and his brother for glory and beauty. In other words, their garments were specifically designed so as to convey the dignity, the importance, the heaviness that went with their office. So you think of Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. And it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, when God has written a book for us through His natural revelation of Himself, His general revelation of Himself, it's not just His splendor and His handiwork that's on full display, but the heaviness of everything that goes along with God being God. The heavens declare that. And it's God who is being lifted high as the object of such glory, worth, and heaviness. Now, Psalm chapter 24 speaks of this. You're in Psalm 19, so flip over just a few pages to this passage and follow along as I read this. Start down there at... Um, Seven. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Listen to how he describes him. That the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I don't know if you have raised your children memorizing some catechism questions and answers that go along with it. We've done that some in our home, actually a good deal. But the first question and answer of the shorter catechism is well known to a lot of us. In fact, if you drive down Dodds Avenue and see the entry sign to Macaulay School, it's imprinted in stone on their entryway the question is this what is the chief end of man and it provides the answer by saying the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever as a side note I just say that to say this as the heavens do our lives are also to do Let's move on to verse 2 where we'll see that even the calendar, even the calendar is a revealing communicator of God's existence. Notice verse 2. See what it says. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Check it what, what David's doing here. David points out how even the rhythmic arrival of each new day he uses this language. It, it pours out the message that something or someone made that happen. 
I love the expression pours out. It's the equivalent of us saying like it overflows from its banks or it, it gushes out. So to kind of illustrate that, I've, I'm going to pull out a two liter bottle of Diet Coke and the tin Mentos that I am going to drop down in. And I don't think it'll make too much of a mess. I'm just going to put it right here on Rich's amp and speaker and just let it kind of gush out and let you... Sorry, Rich is moving his amp and speaker. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But one of my favorite things is to take a Diet Coke and take the lid off and, and drop Mentos in. Have you ever seen what happens? It just explodes like a volcano. It's like a... And that's what the arrival of every day does to communicate that God made that happen. It's never late. It's always on time. And what Psalm 19, what David is telling us here is day to day pours out speech. And he doesn't end with that. He not only highlights day, but he also highlights night. Day to day pours out speech and night to night. Notice what the night does. It reveals knowledge. Night to night reveals knowledge. It's good for David to connect night with knowledge. Because as Derek Kidner points out in one of his writings about this chapter, without the night skies, man would have known only until recently nothing but an empty universe. But what the night skies do is they give us directional points. They give us locations. They point to things that are, they are keys to questions that man has had forever as they look up and gaze upon the stars. And David knew this in Psalm 19 verse 2. And he says, listen, that's God's handiwork. The days come on time and the nighttime reveals His knowledge. All knowledge is God's knowledge. We need not run from the things that the skies share with us and that science reveals because it is a reflection of God's grandeur and goodness. So from verse 1 and 2 of this stanza, we learn that God's general revelation of Himself is visible for all people. Now let's look to verses 3 and 4 to see something else. God's general revelation of Himself has no limitations. Notice what the verses say. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. It would be okay for us to add language here to make clear what could be a little choppy in this voice in this verse. In other words, we could say there's no speech, nor are there words in whom the voice is not heard. Right? So there's no, there's no reach of people, groups, and languages across the world that is outside the reach of God's communicating His glory. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. When you think about these verses that we've read so far in this stanza that, that David has Poured out. Maybe it's part of the reason that C.S. Lewis thinks, man, that's one of the greatest poems in all of the book of Psalms. Because you, you're hearing words like declare, proclaims, speech, and voice. And those words can be confusing as, as they reference something that we're taking in with our eyes. Why is he using language that communicates to our ears 
if we're seeing things with our eyes, when we gaze upon the handiwork of God's creative power, His creative being, His essence, His existence, we're doing so with our eyes, but psalmist here, David, is using language that speaks to our ears, right? Declare, proclaims, speech, and voice. Listen, creation doesn't, it doesn't utter out, it doesn't speak audibly in words, but its message does go out to the ends of the earth. Think about it, whether amidst the Telugu-speaking people of India, the Kosa-speaking people of remote South Africa, or the Arabic-speaking people of Saudi Arabia, the message or the language of Psalm 19, the voice of God's creation goes out to the end of the earth. When you and I at night or in the morning or any time during the day, when we look up at the heavens and the sky, whether morning or night, we cannot help but see the... Let me take you back to the robe that Aaron put on. We cannot help but see the ornamentation, the jewels that define God's glory and His grandeur. It's what we see when we hear the heavens declare the glory of God. And then David offers a specific illustration. Notice what he does here in the second half of verse 4. He could have chosen any physical thing to illustrate his point from the heavens, but he chooses one. And the specific illustration that David offers is the sun. Notice again. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens. Think the sun. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit, the path it travels, its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Just make this real clear here for us. God has set a tent that contains the sun to the exact circuit within which it is to rise and set. It's not arbitrary. I'm sitting at the kitchen table at the house we live in in Lookout Valley, and if I'm sitting on this end looking through that window, I know that when the sun rises, it's always going to be in that spot. It's not going to be behind me because God has set a tent for it. God has defined where its circuit is going to take it and where it's going to land. And every morning, when it kisses the bottom part of my windowsill, the knowledge of the glory of God is kissing my heart. And it's telling me that someone did that. It's interesting because David equates the coming out of the sun to that of the coming out of a bridegroom who's leaving his chamber to receive his bride. There's kind of this humble strut going on with the sun who's doing exactly what the Creator has defined for it to do. And he equates that with a groom. You know, as the pastor presiding over a wedding, I'm probably given the, not only the most unique perspective, but one of the best. I have entered into, maybe I've walked down the aisle, maybe the groom's right behind me, maybe he's with me, but eventually... He and I make our way out there. And so, sometimes I'm out there first and then he walks in. And he's, he's got this 
understandable excitement having in his mind about I'm soon to be wedded to the love of my life. Last Saturday, eight days ago, I was in Loudoun County up south of Knoxville, standing outside and uh, with the groom and his groom bridal party thing, wherever those groomsmen are standing beside him. And he had obviously been threatened upon pain of death. Do not look in the direction of the bride until she gets to a certain point. Well, I didn't know this. I mean, it's not like we were in a church where that bride and her daddy are standing behind the door and then the doors open and then I get to see the bride first and the the groom gets to see that's my bride as they walk down the aisle. So I I see her coming, coming out of the place where she had been up in the little reception area from where she's coming then she was going she walked all the way around and the queue must have been for him she he can't look up until she gets to this tree and like i've done heavens with with male son i i had the pleasure of performing that wedding and I, i'm up there with the groom and i talk to the groom under my breath to kind of they're nervous right so i'm easing the tension a little bit and i say bro what a beautiful bride I'll say something like that. And this groom was standing beside me was not about to make eye contact. And I said, beautiful bride. And he said, I can't look until she gets to the tree. I said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know what's more magnificent. The groom in this culture who would have made his trek from his chamber to where he's meeting the bride or in our culture, when she takes that walk from the aisle with her dad to the, to the place where she's going to be married to this guy. Regardless, it is something that is, has a humble magnificence with it. And David thought so much about that trek that he says, that's what the son does. And not just that, but he's also like a strong man who runs his course and he doesn't do it in such a way that communicates, I'm dreading it. My father wasn't the healthiest man, obviously, in his latter years. And Shan and I and Mary Elizabeth, when she was little, spent a few days with him in Gatlinburg. Um, and I asked Dad, I said, Dad, knowing the answer, I said, Dad, you want to go running with me this morning? About to go run. He said, Son, I'll tell you what. I will run with you the day that I see any runner out there on the street smile as if they're enjoying it. And he was pretty confident that was going to have him off the hook as being, as this says, a strong man runs its course with joy. Most of them run. It's pretty punishing out there. So keeping my father's statement in mind and wondering if some other son has asked their dad to run with him and he's responded to the son with, I'll run the day that I see someone smiling. Occasionally, even up a hill, when I'm not enjoying things, I'll run and just crack out a smile to some passing car, just in case that's the dad who's got to fess up to it. But the son is like that. It's like a bridegroom that makes its presence known and makes that walk in the prescribed place to receive his bride. The rising of the sun spans the heavens and you'll notice that there's nothing hidden from its reach. 
In the 18th century, 1719, Joseph Addison wrote a poem entitled The Spacious Firmament on High. And I'd like to share this poem with you um, before we move on in our passage together. Listen to these words. It's written in some language that's not exactly normal to us, so I'm sure I'll trip over it. Capitalizations are intentional by his hand. And you can see this. The spacious firmament on high with all the blue ethereal sky and spangled heavens a shining frame their great original proclaim. The unwearied sun from day to day does his creator's power display and publishes to every land the work of an almighty hand. Soon as the evening shades prevail, the moon takes up the wondrous tale. And nightly to the listening earth repeats the story of her birth, whilst all the stars that round her burn and all the planets in their turn confirm the tidings as they roll and spread the truth from pole to pole. What though in solemn silence all move round the dark terrestrial ball, what though nor real voice nor sound amid their radiant orbs be found. In reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine. Here's the kicker. The hand that made us is divine. Before I wrap up this first stanza this morning, let me propose a question that you may be thinking about. How is it possible then with such a canvas of artwork above us that is clearly orchestrated, spoken into existence, and exists by the power of another? That other is the Almighty. How is it possible that with that general revelation that God has provided about Himself, how can there still result... Be, how can there be so many people, forgive me, that are still seemingly unaware of God's existence and glory? Paul addresses this question in Romans chapter 1, and he tethered his answer to, the def- to his defense to the salvation-giving gospel. So in other words, he's going to respond to that question. Let's, listen, with such evidence out there in the sky, how could it be that so many people reject God? How could it be that not everyone not only knows about Him, but worships Him? And he responds to that in Romans chapter 1. And I want to invite you to turn there with me as I make a few comments about that before we close. Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 16. I guess an argument could be made while you're turning there that God has provided for Himself the greatest argument against atheism in this chapter. And He'll do it in two stanzas. Uh, We'll look at the next one when we're together. But listen to these words of Romans 1, starting at verse 16, for a defense really about why, okay, why is it that with such evidence in the skies that tell us, the believers, that God exists and that He is great and that He is glorious, Why doesn't everyone respond like that? Verse 16 begins the words of the text. 
where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the power of the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Hear that revelation. It's revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he goes on. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now let me step away from the text and just make a comment before I finish reading from this text. It's not that the truth about God's glory nor the truth about His existence has been sought out and people have been unable to find it. But that when fallen man is confronted by the truth, even as the canvas of the skies articulate the truth of God's existence, as they are confronted by that truth, they seek to block or they seek to reject its influence. In other words, they suppress the truth. Because they, to acknowledge that God is, requires a change in our lifestyle and lives. This rejection of revelation that has been clearly perceived, as we'll see in verse 20, leads to mankind being without any defense. Sinful man rejects God, and although they may try to offer as an excuse for rejecting God that they didn't know any better, God, through His creation, has made Himself known, and all people will be held responsible at the coming judgment and be without excuse. For those who face the judgment having been saved and found in Christ... Jesus has taken our responsibility. For those who have suppressed the truth and walked away from a desire to pursue who the skies are telling them exist, there will be a day of reckoning where an account will have to be given. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes. Now we're talking about that general revelation. Paul is speaking specifically about that. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him but they became futile in their thinking and foolish and their foolish hearts were darkened. Before I jump back to really a concluding statement, I'd like to interject this one point. And the condition that he just described in Romans 1, that was the condition we were all in before God called us to Himself before He awakened us from our spiritual blindness, and before He saved us. If you are here in this room this morning, and you've not experienced the salvation that God provides through Jesus, please talk to any one of the members of Redeemer in this room. Talk to me, Pastor Bill, Pastor Mark, any of us would, 
would, it would be our greatest joy to talk to you in such a way as to help you see what has been revealed to us, not only through creation, but the scriptures. And that is the way to salvation through Jesus. It is yours, has been provided to you by God through Jesus. We'll look at that more specifically when we conclude this chapter in two weeks. But for now, let me say this. Back to general revelation. Back to the canvas of God's handiwork. The majesty of creation reveals an even more majestic creator. But this revelation, as great as it is, it's not enough. It reveals to people everywhere that God is. It reveals to people everywhere that God is glorious, but it does not reveal how we, the created beings, are to relate to Him. It does not reveal how we are to serve Him. And it does not reveal how we are to live every aspect of our lives in light of Him. For that type of revelation, we need something more. And we need something specific. And thanks be to God, He has provided the specific revelation that we need also, and that through His Holy Word. And we'll look at what the second stanza says about that Holy Word, but it is that Holy Word and through that Holy Word that we are led to Christ, our rock and our Redeemer. Notice how you've already turned to Romans 1, so let me just read this how this psalm ends. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. This is what the Scriptures point to with clarity. And by God's grace, He's writing it and imprinting it on our hearts this very day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for revealing Yourself to mankind through creation. Thank You for doing it in such a way that that draws them to desire more clarity. And thank You for providing that clarity which is sure, which is steady, which is more desirable than gold and more sweet than honey, Lord, that we have through Your Word. You have revealed Yourself in two ways to us. Generally through the handiwork that is written in the skies and specifically through Your Word. We worship You. We thank You that the the revelation that You have provided for us has pointed us to Your Son, Jesus, in whom we have life. He is our rock and our Redeemer. And we worship Him this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.